0: You do not wanna be crazy, and want be crazy. To clarify, yes, no, I'm not crazy. We hope this helps. Hello and welcome to Team West Covina, a crazy ex girlfriend podcast. I'm your host Paisley, and today is Saturday, December first, twenty eighteen. This is episode nine of the podcast. I've got a few updates for you guys. I saw Santino Fontana, who played Greg, of course, in the musical Tootsie uh, about a month ago, and I met up with Cynthia from the Bunch at Lunch podcast and her friend there. I had a second row center ticket, and Santino, of course, is in the starring role. He plays Tootsie, and it was so much fun. It's the first time I've ever seen him live. He is every bit what you would expect uh, from seeing him in the show. There was also a, another person in the ensemble, Brittany Coleman, who played Dean Thomas in Bellatrix Lestrange in a very Potter musical. And I didn't realize she was in the show until I got there. So that was pretty fun to see. And there were some unintentional CXG references to Santino's character, Michael, he's kind of like resentful and cynical from not having showbiz success. And he too feels stuck working at a bar like Greg. The bar reminded me of Greg's study drinking bar from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. They both had wagon wheels, cowboy boot lambs. And this one actually had cactus tables. And he had a cactus poster in his apartment, which, of course, reminds me of sexy fashion cactus. Every time I see a cactus, that's pretty much what I think of. And it was a lot of fun to see Santino sing as a woman. We, you know, we could just hear him sing as a man and a woman in Tootsie. And hearing him in his regular voice, too, was just really fantastic to hear him sing live. And after the show, I waited by the stage door. Um, There's a pretty long line of people. And that's where I met up with Cynthia from Bunch at Lunch uh, and her friend joined us. And we got to chat for a pretty long time. A few cast members came out and signed playbills. Some would pose for selfies. I got a photo with John Bellman, who played Max. Uh, Max in Tootsie is kind of like a Josh Chan-like character, a bit slow on the uptake. And I got a photo with Andy... Don't know how to pronounce his last name. It looks like Grotolution or something like that. Um, but he played Jeff who is Michael's hilarious roommate and he had really great delivery. And Santino eventually came out. He was wearing a baseball cap and he went down the line of people signing and posing with everyone. He really finished like the whole line and he was really nice. Um, it was a lot of people for one stage door and I was so happy he came out. I didn't know for sure when I'd see him since he doesn't always come around with the CXG cast. And if you get a chance to see Tootsie, I highly recommend it. He's in the show so much as the lead character and it's it's definitely worth it and it's a fun show. I also wanted to give you guys just a small update on season four and what I, my thoughts are overall. I tend not to talk about it as much on the podcast since it's still going on and I like to kind of collect my thoughts at the end of the series and see how everything's played out. But at least right now, I'm liking season four. I really related to Rebecca starting her own business since that's actually what I've been in the process of doing um, over much of this year. I'm just starting kind of a side business that started out as a hobby and now has kind of grown into a bigger thing you know if i could ever do half time with the business and half time with a different job you know that would be great in you know the the far future but it's definitely something i'm working on right now and we'll just see where it goes but the idea of that being something that rebecca is passionate about was nice to see cuz it's something that's kind of worked for me as well i was a little surprised it was pretzels i i mean i know she has all these symbolic associations with them But being able to run her own business, I think, is a big deal because, you know, not having a boss, making decisions on your own can be really freeing. But of course, right now she's not making a profit. So there are practical things she'll have to address in the future, but it can be really empowering to run your own business. Even though I don't really discuss the current season as much on the podcast right now, I do tend to talk about it on social media. I have some live tweeting on my Twitter account under Team West Covina, and sometimes I'll discuss it on Reddit under Team West Covina. You can find me over there if you're curious what my live hot takes are on the current season. I was also traveling quite a bit in autumn to D.C. and New York City, and so that I, I had a little time off from the podcast while I was doing that because I've been a, away so much. Uh, when I was in New York, I, I met and took photos with Dan Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter in the movies. And we went to a play of his and, and were front row for that. And then afterwards, we got to meet him and i have never met him before um you know he's had a big impact on my life and so that was a ton of fun we got pictures from that so if you want to see photos from my trip or from meeting santino you can friend me on facebook under the url paisley podcasts just uh let me know who you are uh, in what context you're coming from. I have people friending me from my business and then also from the podcast. And occasionally I'll just get somebody random. And uh, if, you're, if you're coming from the podcast or my business, I'm more than happy to friend you back. Uh, even if I haven't met you, just kind of let me know where you're, where you're coming from. It was an all-around good trip, but the other reason I haven't been able to podcast as much is because my, believe it or not, my laptop broke again. Same problem is that the the cord stopped working entirely, so the computer, you know, won't even turn on, and they sent me a new cord, and I just got it today. It's still not working now. That fixed it last time. Now I think it's just dead, (laughs) so I am trying a, a new way of recording on my other computer, which... Normally this computer has a lot of white noise, but I think perhaps this way I'm doing it a different way. So I'm trying to avoid the white noise. We'll see if it works, but I just didn't want to wait any longer. I had the doc done for a while. And so I thought we're just going to do it. Hopefully the sounds okay. And you know, let's go forth. I'd like to get the Christmas episode out before Christmas of this year too. So I'm going to try to have two episodes out in December. So, getting into the episode for this week, it is I'm So Happy That Josh Is So Happy, Season 1, Episode 7. It aired on November twenty third, two 2015. It was written by Sono Patel and directed by Lawrence Trilling. The IMBD synopsis says, When Rebecca decides to self-medicate, she begins having hallucinations of Dr. Phil. Meanwhile, Paula contemplates having an affair with a distinguished client, and Josh's friends help him assemble a table for Valencia. As always, there's a spoiler warning. I could be discussing any element that has happened in episodes that have aired so far. So we are just about halfway through season four at the moment that I'm recording this. So we start off the episode with Paula providing a twilight metaphor for Josh, Greg, and Rebecca. She sees Josh as Edward, Greg as Jacob, and Rebecca as Bella. She's really got the story in her head. She has kind of latched onto these guys as portraying those archetypes, and she really wants to see the happy ending. And you know, I don't think it's a problem in general to kind of view things archetypally and get inspiration from that and feel empowered through um, viewing the world in a little bit more of a mythic lens. But the problem is nothing is going to parallel exactly. And, you know, even though there may be similarities that she's found, it doesn't mean that their story is going to play out the same way it did in Twilight. Sometimes it will veer off course quite a bit. And it's not a one-to-one comparison. I mean, obviously there's tons of ways that Josh is very different from Edward. And Rebecca is very different from Bella, and it's not going to play out perfectly. Uh, If you can take some inspiration from a story or a myth that you really love, that can be great, but it's just a matter of maybe not carrying it too far. After the stocking, Rebecca's at work, and we see her pour vodka into her pen cup, And you see there's blue pen ink at the bottom of the silver container and part of her white shirt ends up in the liquid So when it comes out, you can see it's blue and it's real fast. It's real quick you could miss it if you blink but um, You you see a little precursor to what's going to happen in the conference room We get our first musical entrance with everybody in the office looking at Calvin as he comes out of the elevator Uh, very similar to Cornelia's entrance in season three and when he Talks to Paula at her desk, he compares her perfume to a cherub dancing in the morning dew. It's a little creepy, especially if the attention is unwarranted. I mean, Paula's into it, but some other paralegal might not be. Calvin was an interesting one to try to read because we see a lot of different sides of him throughout the episode. And when Rebecca and Daryl are in the conference room and she makes you know, Kind of a fool of herself and everything just starts going wrong. He pulls her aside and we really see How Daryl is the nicest boss. He tells Rebecca to go home and rejuvenate and then come back on Monday fresh to work on the case You know, he's firm with her, but he, he doesn't Really reprimand her. He doesn't make her feel bad about it. He's just supportive and encouraging and trying to Reorient and reframe the situation so that she focuses on what's important and it's just so nice to say, you, you know, you want every boss to be able to be like that because sometimes your real life is going to come into the office, whether you like it or not. And it's, it's not always going to be something you can leave at the door, even if you try to. When we see Rebecca lying in the couch at home, she's already lying to Paula here since Paula was out of the room getting Calvin's French coffee and doesn't know what happened when Rebecca blundered in front of their important client. Rather than tell Paula she wasn't able to handle anything because Josh moving in with Valencia had sent her into a downward spiral, Rebecca pretends she's just working hard on the case. She's trying to appear more functional than she is rather than admit to anyone, even a friend, how she's really feeling. And how she's feeling isn't something she can entirely help. I mean, it's nothing to be ashamed of but Rebecca is already used to lying to a mother figure since she's had to appear functional to her own mom throughout her life. And this may be why she's more herself with Heather in the episode, but still tries to cover it up with Paula. She wants Paula's approval. She wants Paula to be proud of her. It's a little bit different kind of relationship. So then we slide into the song Sexy French Depression. And there's quite a few interesting lines in this song. We hear that Rebecca goes through old AOL instant messenger conversations with her college boyfriend online. And it made me wonder, is this Robert or someone else? Did she have a proper boyfriend at some point, or was it always referring back to to Robert? I think we get a little bit more about her college romantic history in the Dream Ghosts episode, so that'll be a nice refresher. But it, it definitely made me wonder if she ever had like a solid committed boyfriend, or if it was just Robert that she was mentioning, not by name. We also hear the first reference to John Wayne Gacy, who gets brought up all the way in the season three finale, when Rebecca and Nathaniel are singing, nothing is ever anyone's fault. Uh, there's a line, John Wayne Gacy was hit by his dad, and that's sort of used as an excuse for his horrific behavior. And in Sexy French Depression, Rebecca says she bought a book about him online. So I thought it might be kind of interesting to look at his background a little bit and what Rebecca might be interested in there. I'm sure you know like a little bit about him, but uh, just to provide a few more details, John Wayne Gacy was an American serial killer and rapist. He sexually assaulted, tortured, and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978 in Cook County, Illinois which is in Chicago, Chicago suburbs area. He would get a victim to come to his home through deception, and once inside, they would be strangled or their oxygen supply cut off in some way. And he actually buried most of them on his property. John Wayne Gacy was sentenced to death and eventually died via lethal injection. He was also known as the killer clown because he would dress as a clown at charitable events or for children's birthday parties. Casey's father was a physically abusive alcoholic. He called John a sissy, and he said he would, quote, grow up queer. As a child, John sexually abused another child and shortly after that was abused himself by an adult family friend. He worked in a mortuary as an adult and slept in a cot behind the embalming room, which led to more creepy behavior. When he got married and had children, Gacy's father apologized to him for the abuse and said he was wrong about him, yet by this point John was engaging in all sorts of other illegal acts. So, I think Rebecca could possibly relate to Gacy's dad really messing him up and really damaging his self-esteem and all of that. The idea of his father coming back and saying, I was wrong. And having that reconciliation, you know, that's definitely something that Rebecca could relate to, hoping that that could happen with her own dad. Even though what Gacy did was so much more extreme than, than anything Rebecca's done, it still might be something that would fascinate her. And we also get Gacy's 1968 psychiatric evaluation. This is what a psychiatrist said about him. And this really relates back to uh, nothing is that ever anyone's fault. The psychiatrist says the most striking aspect of the test results is the patient's total denial of responsibility for everything that has happened to him. He presents himself as a victim of circumstances and blames other people who are out to get him. The patient attempts to assure a sympathetic response by depicting himself as being at the mercy of a hostile environment. So that is definitely nothing is ever anyone's fault wrapped up in a nutshell. It's all about absolving himself because of how he was raised. And we know how much Rebecca can relate to that. Gacy was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder after the 70s, and inebriated Gacy chose to confess to murdering over 30 young men. While Rebecca was diagnosed with a different personality disorder, she was diagnosed similarly, and she also chose to confess in the end his lawyers opted to have Gacy plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So here we see that come up again, too. We know Nathaniel asks Rebecca to plead guilty by reason of insanity. I love how even these tiny little references that you see in an early episode, you know, thinking it doesn't mean that much, it comes back later, and it it has a whole underlying meaning if you look at the parallels between the reference in Rebecca's life. In her music video, when she's doing sexy French depression, Rebecca starts out in a little black dress with fully made-up face and hair. In the middle of the video, she's still got perfect face and hair, but she's wearing her real depression clothes as she starts to come back to reality. And then there's this iconic shot of her lying on the floor of the bathroom with a bottle of dessert wine beside her. And I'm pretty sure her bra is hanging from the shower rod. And then after the song ends, we see her in no makeup with hair undone and pajamas. So she's sort of progressively sliding back into reality as she goes through the song. That's sort of the place she gets to, and they do a really good job of portraying that throughout uh, her fantasy number. So when Rebecca has a chat with Dr. Phil in her mind, he tells her to get some art on the walls. It's almost as if she views her place as a prison cell or temporary respite, not a real home. She's so focused on her goal of getting together with Josh that she's not practicing self-care, investing in her surroundings. She doesn't even notice how bare and minimal her house is. Next, we see Rebecca visiting Dr. Acopian in hopes of getting some medication, and I kind of get why Rebecca doesn't want to rehash childhood with yet another therapist. Sometimes it doesn't help or solve anything, and it's hard to know whether you're dealing with a good therapist or not until you invest time and money into each one. Rebecca sounds dismissive here, but she's mainly focused on trying to be functional at work and in life rather than dropping everything to air out her psychological issues. And while it's important to do that, her first focus is, hey, I need to be functional. I can't let my life fall apart. I'll deal with the deep psychological work later. Or, you know, maybe she doesn't even believe that that's going to help because she's done it in the past over and over. And whoever those therapists were, they really didn't help heal her in the way that she needed. We also hear her say, you'll be hearing from me on Yelp, which of course later comes back in season four when Rebecca admits to Josh that the bad Yelp reviews of Dr. Acopian are from her. In the next scene, there's all these Alice in Wonderland references, rabbits on the wallpaper in the bathroom, black and white checkerboard floor like chess which comes up in Alice in Wonderland. Rebecca's in a blue dress. Uh, It's navy, not powder blue or sky blue, but she is in a blue dress like Alice. She finds a pink oval pill with the number 55 on it. Rebecca Googles, finds out it's ADD medication, and later she pretends the pill says, eat me, Rebecca. So lots of Alice in Wonderland references and it really dives into that whole fantasy world element again she sees taking this ADD medication as kind of an adventure. She said she always wanted to try it, and it's just another case of her going down the rabbit hole. In the next scene, we're dealing with Daryl, Paula, and Calvin, who are all three having dinner at Paula's house, and Daryl's perspective on Paula's relationship with Scott is very different from hers. Paula says, he does what he wants to do, I don't care. I do what I want to do, he doesn't care. It's basically a storybook about the bromance I dreamed of as a little girl. Of course, she's being sarcastic, but Daryl um, is either oblivious, saying, see, you guys get each other, that's so cool. Or he legitimately thinks that this arrangement could be beneficial for both parties. It allows them to remain independent, not sacrifice their personal lives for the sake of the relationship. I mean, some people might actually be happy with the arrangement if they get to do what they want to do and then come home and be with their partner. And not everybody necessarily needs their partner to be watching the West Virginia sing or, you know, watching somebody be in a tournament or investing in the other person's life in that way. Some people don't care about that. Um, But Paula is not happy with this. She really wants more emotional support and attention from Scott. And we know from future episodes that he wants that from her too. He, it really matters to him to have Paula come and watch him sing with the West Rovinas and support him and be excited about his performance. And for Paula, becoming a lawyer is a huge, important deal for her and getting to take the lead on a business meeting because Rebecca couldn't be there is something you know she probably would have appreciated having Scott there for if their marriage was doing better. We know, in fact, that Paula was almost moved to cheat when Scott didn't show up for her big meeting with Calvin. She was filling in for Rebecca, even though she wasn't a lawyer yet, and that's a big deal for her. And that was the moment that kind of pushed her over the side. It wasn't just Calvin's appeal, but it was also Scott not showing up for her. And of course, later on, we see Scott move to cheat when Paula doesn't make it to his West Brovina's show. So this is a crucial part of their marriage. This is something that's important to both of them, but neither of them are really doing it yet. It is an interesting parallel to look back on though. When they pour the wine, Calvin says, this is an adorable red, unconventionally alluring with the soul of a poet. And I always kind of thought he was referring to Paula here, uh, the adorable red. (laughs) Daryl takes a while to get what's going on, but eventually he decides to leave seemingly without judgment. Uh, which is, you know, pretty pretty big on his part. He knows Paula's married, and you know he knows Scott is away, and he seems to discern what's happening between Calvin and Paula, but he doesn't judge her or reprimand her. He just kind of takes it in and and gets out of their hair and uh, leaves her to make her own decisions. So I think, you know, that's pretty big of him, uh, as well as, you know, what Rebecca does later coming in and, you know, passionately explaining to Paula why she thinks she shouldn't go through with it. I, I can see both their perspectives. And I, I do think both of them handled things in a, in, a, in a fairly non-judgmental way. So back to Rebecca and Dr. Phil, who says, Josh could find you if he wanted to. You have made yourself really easy to find. You have been rejected. He doesn't want you. That's reality. Deal with it. And I think in some place I heard uh, Rachel say that he almost made her cry for real because of course she could relate to the situation from, from her past experiences. And, even just acting, it was, it was pretty powerful. Dr. Phil basically said that he doesn't really do lines. He wants to speak the way he would as a therapist. And so he would typically improv the lines to kind of have it fit the story, but they were his choice of words, basically. So then we cut back to Calvin and Paula and Calvin asks if Paula and her husband would like to join him at the jazz club for some smooth licks, which it's, starting to sound like he's asking them for a threesome or something, but while he covers his bases by inviting her husband too, he's really laying it on pretty thick. I get that Scott hasn't held any appeal for Paula in a while, so I understand why she'd be really excited about Calvin, especially because that kind of guy doesn't walk into her life very often, but he's been pretty aggressive when he knows that she's married, so for me personally, it was a bit of a turnoff, I think there's there's a fine line between seeming interested and, and being open to that and being forceful and direct. He, he did seem to be putting a lot of pressure on her, although she was also being very encouraging. So, you know, it, it might have been him responding to that. But even before he knew how she was going to react, he was turning the charm on pretty hard. Rebecca mentions the grout needing to be redone in the sexy French depression song, and then later when she's hyped up on the ADD meds, mentions she fixed the grout. They're real good with little continuity things like this, just teeny tiny little things that they'll bring back in. And during this part, they also do a really good job of having the drumsticks and jazzy music in the background amplify how her brain is feeling and thinking in that moment, you know, like the ADD kind of pattern and intensity And the background music also fits with the jazz club that Paul is going to. There were definitely a few directorial moments that I thought were really artistic and well done. Um, This was one of those subtle little things that I noticed, as well as that shot on the bathroom floor at the end of Sexy Friends Depression is just very iconic. It really captures the moment very well. Dr. Phil tells Rebecca that crazy is a derogatory term, and he says he doesn't think it really applies to her, you know, which is nice to hear, of course. So eventually, Rebecca turns to Heather for pot to kind of help her cope, and she says, I could melt into this chair like a butter lady, and she also had started to paint the walls of butter yellow, so of course it makes me think of the butter commercial and, you know, just that. Butter reference, buttery yellow. Does she associate that with happiness? It was just an interesting choice of words. So then we go to the guys, and we find out that Josh fell asleep at Greg's house and stayed all night. Valencia called and is super upset. I mean, can you imagine this from her end? I mean, after the the Rebecca problems, she's probably wondering, you know, where the hell is this guy? You know, did something else happen? Uh, We don't see her end of it, but, you know, you can imagine that it's very confusing to her. But we also know that when Rebecca went on Instagram, Valencia had posted a a pic of her and Josh in their new bedroom and said, hashtag christened. So, I mean, obviously that was taken before Josh went to Greg's house, but it sounds like she maybe didn't post it until after when Josh was not home. And what Valencia is presenting on Instagram is probably pretty curated and doesn't necessarily reflect her actual state of mind. If she was kind of in a panic about where Josh was... What she's posting on Instagram, it just makes them look like a cute couple. And it's kind of funny because, you know, Rebecca sees that gets kind of anxious and and distressed. But little does she know Valencia is also anxious and distressed at home in their new house alone. Then we get the great uh, table metaphor, which pretty much equates to hating Valencia. And the guys tell Josh there's still time to bail, even though Josh and Valencia moved in we know that Josh is kind of seeing this as it's been taken to another level. Now he's really wanting to be committed to her. He's agreed to make this work and he doesn't think he can just back out. And the guys are trying to tell him, you know, Hey, even if you move forward on something big, if it's bad, if it's really not working, you can get out. Uh, No one is stopping you from doing that. Even if it would be, a little embarrassing or challenging. Don't let that big step cloud your judgment, even though you've invested in this. And then we get Hector's brilliant parking metaphor. It just gets worse and worse and worse as it goes on. And I still laugh so hard every time I see that. I've seen it a bunch and it still makes me laugh. It is great writing. In the next scene, Rebecca and Heather are kind of wandering around eating burritos and Rebecca's kind of raving about the burrito that she's gotten a yellow plastic wrapper. It made me wonder if she got Taco Bell because in the early part of the episode, Josh is excited because his new place is close to Taco Bell. And it would be just kind of a nice little parallel between them that they both get excited about that. We also see Rebecca just toss her burrito wrapper on Dr. Acopian's lawn, like not thinking about it at all. Uh, Completely insensitive. It's just one more thing that she's not taking into consideration. I wondered a little bit, are we at Dr. Acopian's house or practice? Are they one and the same? I mean, I think it has to be her house because it's got a doggy door, but it seems like they might practice out of their home. At the jazz club, Calvin trying to be the big fish in West Covina is hilarious. Kind of like Nathaniel doing the same thing later on. We see Calvin try to tip the waiter to seat them, and the guy tells him he doesn't even work there. And when Calvin continues with the swab recovery, this will get you back on your feet then. The guy's like, no, I have a job. (laughs) Don't need your money. And Calvin awkwardly winks to the point that it looks like his eye is twitching. Paula's trying to keep up with Calvin's references, and she asks if he's been to Paris, since that's always her thing. Paula is getting the fantasy for a temporary period of time. And she does later acknowledge it's like a fantasy and she looks amazing here. She looks so good in that dress. And I think she actually got to keep the dress because later on she performed in it live when she's saying his status is preferred at some event it always makes me laugh a little bit that Adam Schlesinger wrote his status is preferred since he knows and has worked with a guy that I've dated. That's like this only on a larger level than Calvin. The two room executive suite and the whole I've never been in a hotel room with a couch before. Like I, I definitely know that uh, feeling, and it's such a great parody of that archetype. At the time, I was early twenties and living in a tiny apartment, and if the person I was seeing was, you know, in a a musical or a performance or, you know, doing something in the entertainment industry in various cities, you know, we'd end up at a fancy Hyatt hotel, which is a place I never would have stayed on my own, especially not in college and all of that. So, you know, going to different cities and being at these fancy hotels, it was kind of like walking into a different world. I remember walking into one of the Hyatt's around Christmas time, and it is decorated you know like it would be in a movie or something it's it's really over the top and you know you're kind of like where am I and but you know my experience too was that this is just temporary you know I'm going and spending time on the weekend but you know, I'm gonna go back to my regular college life uh, during the week and it was definitely somewhat of a, a fantasy even though it was was real for me it was only a corner of my life so I definitely relate to what Paula's feeling here. I mean, it was something I went through when I was still very inexperienced in relationships, but I remember the feeling for sure. At the time, I didn't even live in an urban environment, so it was all, all new to me. I had a little question about the timing of Rebecca's arc and Paula's arc coming together. Paula was in a dark and jazz club with Calvin, and then she's in a hotel in broad daylight. Rebecca was in broad daylight at Dr. Copian's house, and then we know from earlier they said that tomorrow afternoon was when they were going to go to the jazz club, so it does all check out. It just looks and feels like it's at night when they're when they're at the jazz club. Maybe not typical for you know all the fancy dresses and the in the dark lighting to be going on in the afternoon, but they made it work when Paula and Rebecca are on the phone, Paula about to be with Calvin at the hotel is the thing that wakes Rebecca up and kind of gets her out of her stupor, which you know, on one level is really wonderful because it's Rebecca being attuned to someone else's problems and, and genuinely caring about Paula. But on another level, it, at first, it kind of seems a little hypocritical because her instinct seems to be to stop Paula while Paula supports Rebecca being with Josh, even if it means that Josh cheats on Valencia. And Rebecca herself seems to be okay with that to a certain degree. Um, So why can Rebecca do it but not Paula at the same time? They are in different roles. Paula is married She's committed to someone else. She and Scott made a contract to each other Whereas Rebecca is single and free to be with whoever she wants. She doesn't have a contract with anyone. She didn't agree to anything and Josh would be breaking a contract, but that's up to him. He does not have to do it It is entirely his call so they are in different roles. It's, it's not as hypocritical as it might seem on first pass, but Rebecca gives this impassioned speech explaining her thought process. And part of me thought she might have conflicting feelings about cheating because her dad cheated on her mom notoriously. And Paula's kids would then have to deal with their parents possibly divorcing, like Rebecca had to deal with her parents' divorce. And while all that may be, it sounds like Rebecca thinks Paula should deal with the state of her marriage first before falling into a fantasy. And that's not to say that Paula couldn't have divorced Scott or eventually dated Calvin. It's not inherently doomed, but doing it right then would have likely regulated it to a relationship that never fully gets off the ground. And it's problematic that Calvin was so pressuring when it came to seducing Paula, despite the fact that she's married. He's single, it's allowed, but it's better to let Paula make the decision on her own, since it's really her relationship and her marriage. And Heather's reaction to all of this is priceless, too. She is wildly entertained. And I have so much empathy towards Paula when she says, it's been five years since I've made love without the TV on, and ten years since somebody's held my hand. You completely get why she's trying to fix it any way she knows how. Regardless of the outcome, you understand where she's coming from and you understand how much it's been weighing on her and for how long. I think from Paula's initial perspective, she thinks, you know, if, if you're offered the chance to jump into a story, you take it. But she really listens to Rebecca and she really considers her words and uh, they have this wonderful friendship moment. And this is actually very early on in the series for Rebecca to make such strides as a friend and as someone who is capable of critical thinking and reacting quickly in a limited time period where, you know, she didn't really have a lot of time to think about this. She just had to make a decision and go do it if she was going to do anything And this is sort of like the Rebecca I would have expected to see in season four, the Rebecca that we do eventually see in season four. We see a a glimmer of this already, and a lot of it is coming from her own experiences and what she's gone through, being depressed and, and trying to escape from that feeling. The Calvin character becomes more likable when he genuinely starts to tear up and says, I miss my dead wife. There was, in fact, a deeper wound he was trying to heal. And it's both truly moving and genuinely funny. The actor does a great job with this. It's really both. You feel empathetic towards him, but it's also very amusing because you don't expect it. And Calvin tells Rebecca that she was both brave and foolish, both Gryffindor traits. He says she has no nonsense, honesty, and raw emotional insight all of those things are very gryffindor and you know of course i've got this ongoing critique of which house rebecca is actually in she thinks she's in ravenclaw but that's sort of the direction her mom pushed her in and i think at the core she's more gryffindor she acts on instinct and she is unusually bold about things she tends to believe her intuition over other other things Calvin has a weird line here. He says, my dead white wife loved alpaca. And I was like, white wife? What? Why does that matter? I, it was just such a strange line. And then we go back to the guys who are waiting to present Valencia with table that they have completed. And what we see white Josh is actually wearing tie-dye rainbow shoes. It's just a quick pass, but uh, he's already in the rainbow shoes well before we find out about his sexuality. So that was a nice little uh, hidden nod. I think people are pretty split on Valencia Josh and the table from what I've seen. I don't think anyone's disagreeing that Valencia's viewpoint on it not matching their other things is valid or that they should have picked it out together. Especially if she's known for caring about decor, that all makes sense. And, And Josh's guy friends even warn him about that ahead of time. At the same time, was it appropriate to tell Josh to take it back after they worked so hard putting it together, especially when it embarrassed him in front of his friends who had helped? Valencia also kind of manipulates him by making it sound like it was his idea to take it apart and bring it back, and then calls him smart when we know that's a sensitive topic for him, So it seemed a little passive aggressive to me, even though I understand why she would want a different table. You know, at the very least, in my opinion, like live with the table for a period of time and then maybe upgrade. Josh wanted to surprise her. And clearly he was going above and beyond to try to do a nice thing. And perhaps he was trying to make up for forgetting the sage and disappointing Valencia in other ways. You know, his intentions were good. And I think that's the most important thing here in the short term anyway. So we see Rebecca back with Dr. Acopian, and this is the first time that she seems to be genuinely committing to therapy after her big revelation. And because Josh texts her, she's pulled out of it. She's interrupted and leaves before she can finish. And this is definitely a precursor to when Josh interrupts her therapy session to propose to Rebecca in season two. In this situation, Josh asks her to meet for Boba, and noticeably this is directly after Valencia rejected his surprise gesture and didn't appreciate him. I think that's the challenging thing is theoretically, you know, somebody should be able to separate the relationship he has with his girlfriend and the relationship he has with this other girl he's interested in. But in practice, a lot of the time people can't do that and they start to react to both people in accordance with the other. You know, if something bad happens with Valencia, then he goes to Rebecca and they get more conflated than they, you know, maybe should be. And it makes it hard to have an, an independent relationship with either girl. But when Josh and Rebecca sit down, Josh asks, is this a nice table? And it's like a test, you know, kind of. Rebecca doesn't know it, and and she says it's a perfect table. But, you know, to him, like, she passed the test. This was the right answer. This was strikingly different than Valencia. And it's not exactly a fair test, but it means something to him. It tells him something. But it also shows that, you know, maybe Josh and Rebecca wouldn't have that type of issue, because they're more on the same page about some of those things. Then they, they run into the real Dr. Philip Boba, and Rebecca says, he thinks we're a couple. We're not a couple. That's so funny. He thinks we're a couple, which is, of course, the same thing she later does with her father when the wedding dance instructor thinks that. So lots of parallels happening there. Both her father and Josh rejected her, and she strongly wants to be identified with them. Before we get into all the different segments of the episode, I just wanted to remind you that you can support the podcast at patreon.com-teamwescovino. If you have even a couple bucks to spare, it's all really helpful. Um, I have noticeably had a lot of tech issues this year, so I will always be tweaking tech equipment and trying to uh, find time to contribute to the podcast and get episodes out. So being supported in that way is a big help. And thank you to the patrons that are already supporting. I really appreciate it. And if you're unable to support financially, but are able to rate or review the podcast on whatever app you're using, uh, it helps other people find the podcast and will rank higher in search results. Having good reviews to the podcast is a huge help. Usually only takes a minute or two of your time. So thanks to all of you who have done that so far. So let's move into the Who It segment, which takes a look at how many times Rebecca initiates plans to get Josh and how many times Paula instigates. In this episode, Paula suggests calling Valencia from a burner phone, telling her there's been a murder at the yoga studio to give Rebecca and Josh alone time together. And Rebecca asks Josh if she can come over with a housewarming gift. So in this episode, Rebecca instigated once and Paula instigated once. And the total so far is Rebecca's instigated 10 times, Paula's instigated seven. So quite a lot on both their parts. Our Ring of Fire segment addresses the fire reference in each episode. This one is at the Jazz Club. The waiter says our specialty cocktail tonight is called the Chimney, the Chimney Fireplaces. And the drinks actually bubble and smoke. Our suicide watch segment looks at any early nods to Rebecca's tendency to go to that dark place, which of course we deal with directly in season three. There are no direct references in this episode, but it is hidden within the folds of sexy French depression when you look at the inspiration for it. Rachel Bloom mentions originally wanting to parody Lana Del Rey, who jumps off a cliff in her music video Summertime Sadness. So there's that hidden nod to suicide in the makings of this music video. You can see that she uses lots of French bridges in sexy French depression, but it's not overt that Rebecca might be thinking of jumping off them. The character doesn't appear to be thinking that in any kind of obvious way. But if you know the inspiration, all these bridge visuals, you know, may mean more than it appears on the surface. Our Booze Clues segment, there's really none in this episode in relation to Greg, since he doesn't really appear in it. Our Nailed It segment looks at the symbolism in the color of Rebecca's nail polish. In this episode, she's wearing black nail polish. And the question is, is it because she's playing the villain, or is it because she's depressed, or both? I think it could be argued that it's both, but I think mainly it's because she's playing the villain. We definitely see her wear black nail polish while doing kind of sketchy things in other episodes. And a lot of the time when she's depressed, she just doesn't wear nail polish at all. So in this episode, we see her spying on Josh and Valencia. We see her in the office drinking vodka when she's causing havoc at Dr. acopian's office and when she and Heather break in later, all of that is black nail polish. In our music notes segment, we look at the songs of the episode and what they're parodying or what they're inspired by. With sexy French depression, as I mentioned earlier, Rachel originally wanted to parody Lana Del Rey in Summertime Sadness, and when they show her committing suicide, it's through the lens of an Instagram filter, kind of making the figure appear tragic and sexy at the same time. That was Rachel's original inspiration, and at first, Rachel proposed a song called I'm So Sexy Sad. Of course, she recycled that line in group hang, but Aline Brash McKenna went to the bathroom, came back, and then Rachel had already changed it, she already had a different idea uh, which is what became Sexy French Depression. And she talks about how people like Marilyn Monroe, society kind of sexualizes them in the context of tragedy, and they that society tends to like women being powerless and disenfranchised, and that somehow that is sexy. And she was trying to address that or parody that in her song. And then her status is preferred. Adam Schlesinger wrote it, although the idea came from Rachel, And the writer's room heard it as a poem first before he had the melody and the whole room loved it and thought it was perfect. We have a couple different themes in this episode. There are a lot of French references in both Paula's and Rebecca's arcs and the inference that this signals traits like elitism, sophistication, class, elegance, sex appeal, things like that. It's all about idealizing other cultures and other worlds. Uh, not just Branch, but also Calvin's world, Josh's world. And it's ultimately all about dealing with problems rather than running away from problems, that the escapism isn't good if it means you never face your actual issues. And rather than find distractions from what you really need to solve, the best thing to do is deal with it head on and make some progress. And the other theme that we see paralleled in this episode is that both Josh and Paula haven't admitted to themselves that they might need to bail on the relationships they've invested in for many years. Josh thinks that he can't because he now lives with Valencia, and Paula thinks she can't because she's married and has children with Scott. And there's a thing in psychology, too, where the more you invest in a situation, the less likely it is that you'll bail on it or get out of it, because you feel like the time you've invested in it would be wasted then. And you'd rather wait it out and hope that your investment is worth it, or that you can salvage something from it, than walking away to try to start fresh with something better. I know a book I read gave the example of even just waiting at a bus stop. If you've been waiting for a bus for a long time, and it didn't come when it was supposed to, it might be more sensible to try to grab an Uber or find another way to get there. But at that point, you've invested so much time in waiting for that bus that you kind of stubbornly stick it out, you know, and you want to like make it at this point because now you're mad that you've been waiting there for so long. Even if it's more logical to find a way that might be faster, the investment of time can really sway people's decisions. I know a similar thing happened with Cheetah. My Josh Chan He confessed feelings to me about three months after he moved into a condo with catnip. And he said, you know, it's the worst timing in the world. We just signed a lease. We just moved in together. We just bought all this furniture. What am I supposed to do? I can't get out of it now, even though I really want you to be my girlfriend. He felt really stuck in the situation because it was terrible timing I think that's very similar to Josh. He went all in and he doesn't think he can just back out right now. And he also doesn't want to be the jerk who does that. You know, I mean, he thinks people would view him as a jerk if he did that to Valencia. I mean, his friends wouldn't, but probably her family and other people might think that he was kind of jerking her around. And Josh really cares what other people think, you know, quite a bit. So he def- he definitely doesn't wanna be seen as the bad guy. So next we have the poll question from podcast episode eight, which was, where do you think Rebecca will find that sense of belonging by the end of the series? And we had people respond on Twitter. 7% of you said friends and a new partner. 8% of you said friends alone. 10% said Nathaniel and friends. And 75% said herself. And I think that's pretty representative of the community in general. I think a lot of people are saying herself right now. I personally have a a somewhat different answer, but I think Rebecca's sense of self is definitely a big part of it for sure. So the new poll question for this episode is Who do you ship Paula with? Scott, Jeff, Calvin, or someone else? The podcast question for this episode is How did you view Calvin upon first watch? What was your impression of him? Did it change as you saw the whole episode? Do you see him differently now? What do you guys think about Calvin? And feel free to go ahead and post that on any of my social media. You can reach out to the podcast or start discussions on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all under Team West Covina. You can also email me at paisley.podcast at gmail.com. And just a reminder, if you're able to rate and review after this episode, that would be awesome. Thanks so much. If you don't plan to join us for A Copian's Corner, where we talk about how we personally relate to the show, thanks for listening. So this time on A Copian's Corner, I'm getting a little further into my story and some of the ways that it parallels Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and and kind of reveals how I've related to the show over time. I have a few journal entries that deal with the period where Cheetah and Catnip were actively searching for condos, places to live, looking at signing leases, actually moving in together, like the period that Rebecca's at with Josh and Valencia in this episode, where what's done is done. She has to accept it. And even if Josh is attracted to her, even if he has feelings for her, he's chosen to move out with Valencia. So she just needs to move on and deal with the situation, even if not a lot of good has come out of it for her. So the first journal entry I have to share starts out like this. In a way, I'm really upset and distraught that Cheetah opened me up in January. I know I've been closed for a long time, but this is just so messy and complicated and futile. January took my world upside down and now I can't write it. The talk we had in the middle of the night was like our enchantment passing through moment from Aida. I hate that I'm unlucky enough to have fallen for someone not available because I so rarely feel attracted to anyone at all. This situation may not be healthy, but being alone isn't any healthier for me now, mainly due to the fact that it's been too long. I'm glad I hibernated for three years. It made me a better and more developed person to be on my own. But it's not making me better anymore. On Sunday afternoon and evening, Catnip texted me again. She and Cheetah had seen a place they really liked, although there was heavy competition for it. It's a coach home, and when she showed me through email, it actually looked quite nice. She gave me all sorts of details and asked for my honest opinion. If they got this place, move-in date would be March 1st. I'm in one of those sitcom situations. What kind of advice to give? I gave Katnip lots of advice about reading the entire lease, even if it's boring, and writing in anything that wasn't covered, initialed by both her and the landlord. I told her to make sure they were given a copy of the lease. I was honest with Katnip about both the pros and cons of the townhouse. I found out that the management company got nothing but bad reviews online and they do need to know that. I also gave her plenty of positive comments about the looks of the apartment because it appears to be very nice. I told her about all the repairs our landlord has done at my place, even though I have newer appliances. I gave her a list of typical bills and said it's usually advised that you add up all of that and see how much you have left over. That would let her know if she can afford the townhouse. I also mentioned how great it was that they had savings because I couldn't have done it without mine. After that, Catnip said a few things about her relationship with Cheetah and told me she's worried because she's not into foreplay or kissing or sex with him. She never has been. She says a lot of the stuff she watches alone involves girls. Then I went into my email since Catnip texted me that she'd sent pictures of the property. To my surprise, I also had an email from Cheetah. While driving Catnip to dinner with a friend group, I mentioned that I was on the lookout for a deep green braided cord for initiation into my spiritual group and couldn't find one anywhere. The stores only carried a washed-out light green. Because she's crafty, I thought she might have some advice. She wasn't sure, but apparently told Cheetah what I said because he went online and looked for me. He sent me links to all the different green cords that he found. He found a couple darker greens that would work, and they were even the right width. After all the stress of being their apartment advisor and expecting them to sign any moment, this was a welcome surprise. He'd come home from apartment shopping with catnip, and basically shopped for me and sent off that email directly afterwards. Plus, he knew it was for initiation, and the fact that he was indirectly supporting my spiritual practice, despite not being spiritual himself, was touching. He was also the one to get the right color paint for my cosplay wand when it broke and painted it himself. The next day, Catnip sent me a text that said, signed the lease, but then Cheetah kept saying I'm bumming him out because I seemed sad, end quote. Katnip keeps finding more and more flaws with the condo. She said that a huge part of the reason she moved out was because she wanted to be more goth and decorate in goth style, but couldn't do either at her parents' house. By the afternoon, she'd gotten into an upswing because she was shopping online and buying a bunch of stuff they didn't need. Katnip tends to want things immediately, which leads to her picking something she's only half excited about and then trying to fix all the flaws she finds. She did this with her previous ex, with Cheetah, and with the townhouse. She could have waited and kept looking over the next couple months. She had the luxury of time, even if it meant dealing with her parents a little longer. But she didn't. She struck within the first couple weeks of searching. And now it sounds like she's partially regretting it. Katnipp goes with her best present option, rather than waiting until something more appealing comes along. She poo-pooed Cheetah as a boyfriend until things blew up with the guy she was really into. But once Cheetah became her best present option, she said yes. Katnab believes this townhouse is her best present option, but is fully aware it can't be fixed to satisfy her true standards. It can only be improved. This is like Samantha Jones dressing up the turtle on Sex and the City. She thought she could take an undesirable man and make him over into the perfect boyfriend. A cheetah is no turtle, but Katnab does do this, taking charge of his hygiene, hair, and literally dressing him up in cosplay. She also pushes him to become the boyfriend she wants, which meant relocating to a different state, getting a full-time job and moving into their own place, even though Cheetah didn't naturally feel a drive to do any of those things. And the other journal entry I wanted to share with you takes place after Kat and Cheetah moved into their new condo. And it was kind of similar, there's some parts in here that remind me of uh, when Rebecca bought Josh and Valencia rice cooker, I too brought them a housewarming gift. And there's definitely a lot of things that parallel the episode we just talked about. So here's the next journal. I need a t-shirt that says I survived the housewarming. I actually did pretty well and held it together. I got Katnip a pricey housewarming gift. I hadn't intended it to be pricey, but she has expensive taste. A few weeks ago, she sent me links of all this decorative stuff she bought for the condo, including one link to an item she hadn't purchased but wanted. Katnip was extremely excited about my gift. Apparently, she'd been looking at it earlier that day and debating whether to buy, so I was relieved she didn't have it already. Well, at their new place, I turned around to head into the kitchen for a glass of water when Cheetah barreled around the corner and we came within inches of bumping into each other, face to face. I apologized, ducking my head and scampering into the kitchen. Catnip told me and two of our other friends at the housewarming that she won't be happy until they can buy a place because then they could knock down walls, paint it the color she wanted. Cheetah went, we're only a week into condo living and she's already unhappy. Our other friends who were at the housewarming are getting married this weekend and just announced to us that they're having a baby. She and Katnip began to reminisce at how much had changed for them in two years, making me feel like an even bigger chump because none of those life markers had changed for me. They never do. Katnip told us that the guy she really liked, who ended things just months before she got together with Cheetah, had called her out of the blue when she and Cheetah were moving into the new condo. He seemed like he wanted to reconnect, and she was skeptical, but two days later, she texted him again with, you say you miss me, but what do you miss? Later on, we had an exchange that reminded me of when Josh asks Rebecca what she thought at the table. Katnippa asked us for opinions yet again. Do you like how the TV and Entertainment Center are slanted, or do you think they should be pressed against the wall? I don't know. I like it the way it is. If it was against the wall, the people on the left side of the couch wouldn't be able to see the television very well, I commented. Cheetah crowed because apparently I had unknowingly agreed with him. Right, he went. And if it was against the wall, you'd get a huge glare from the windows. Plus, would all those cords behind it even fit if it was pushed up against the wall, I questioned. Cheetah snorted. No, there's a ton of them. The catnip looked a bit put out. So that was basically my experience of the initial moving in together and watching Cheetah get a place with someone who he was obviously incompatible with And there are a couple other moments it reminded me of. I didn't pull journal entries for them or anything like that. But uh, there was a time later on when, uh, like, Valencia curating social media, Catnip made it sound like Cheetah had bought her a stuffed toy for Valentine's Day when really he'd bought it for himself. But she saw everybody else making all these posts about Valentine's Day on social media and wanted it to appear like her boyfriend was showering her with gifts when that Very much wasn't the case, and she told me so offline. But she wanted it to appear to everyone else like more was happening than really was. And there's another moment that kind of reminded me of Valencia and the table, which happened at a different time. I remember Katnip badgering Cheetah to get her a ring for ages not an engagement ring, but just a you know, fancy pretty ring. And when he finally did, she didn't like it, she didn't like what it looked like, and she had him return it and picked out something else. So they she definitely does remind me of Valencia. There are a lot of parallels. Uh, but I, I also want to stress that the the bigger thing is not that somebody's doing something wrong or that somebody should be blamed. It's really more that they are fundamentally incompatible. And all three of us knew that and acknowledged that from very early on, uh, even though they kind of stayed together for a while because of the investment the incompatibility was really what the issue was more than somebody making bad choices or, or something like that. Cheetah and I might have been more on the same page about some of these things, but it doesn't mean that Catnip's opinions or feelings were wrong or invalid. It just means that they, especially living together, they kind of discovered how much they clashed. And you know, now she's living with someone who, as far as I know, Uh, makes her very happy in that they're very compatible, and they actually did just buy a house. So I think she's on the road to happiness, and I don't know a whole lot of what's going on at this point, but we have some mutual friends, and it seems like she's where she always wanted to be. So I think it worked out for her. We'll continue with the story as we go through the episodes. I'm always dropping little bits and pieces in, but I, I also want to talk about the other side of things Like in season two, when we get to the episode where Valencia and Rebecca bond, you know, I want to talk about some positive things about my friendship with her when we had it. And, uh, you know, I definitely want to present all perspectives as best I can, considering it's just coming from me. So that's it for now. Expect a Christmas episode coming soon, dealing with episode nine, which was Crazy Ex-Girlfriend's Christmas episode. And thank you so much for listening.